You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him, Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We pray now that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, that we might have deepening and growing faith in his promises, uh, trust in his nearness through your spirit. We pray that you would do a great work in and amongst us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, I've been waiting about, well, 10 months to sing with you all this evening, and I could only sing about half of the words that we were supposed to be singing, uh, just because I was hearing you, and then I was making like a sauna um, behind my glasses and my mask. Uh, Caleb and Emily, it's good to see you. Uh, Monday, Sebastian was born. Monday? Yes. Sebastian, welcome to Christ Church, my man. Uh, Glad to see you all. Uh, All right, yeah. We'll pray for you all and him in a week or two or three. Uh, Well, what a week. What a week. Uh, I don't know how many times the phrase unprecedented times or unprecedented days have been uh, used in the past nine to 12 months, but this week seemingly took that to a new level. Uh, If you were like me on Tuesday, I was pretty locked into my computer for most of that day. For most of that day, just frustrated, angry, bewildered, And I'm not going to rehash everything that Clint wrote in Thursday's weekly email. If you didn't read that, I'd really encourage you to. Like four or five just really, really wise and encouraging paragraphs. But 
including in his words, there have been a lot of other needed words written about our American political life, written about the American church, written to the American church. But as I then really began to open Acts 8 on Wednesday morning to begin preparing for Sunday, I remembered the description of what was happening at the beginning of that chapter, the beginning of Acts 8, when Saul began ravaging the church and the people were scattered. Now, I'm not at all trying to, like, about to make a connection to this week or the events of the past few months to the kind of serious religious persecution that Saul was leading against the church in Jerusalem. But the beginning of Acts 8 is utter chaos. It is chaos. We thought about Acts 8, 1 through 3 as the, like, the very dark season 1 finale of the TV series adaptation of the book of Acts. There's like sad and ominous music building as the camera begins to focus in on Saul, maybe as he's like walking straight towards the camera and like Jerusalem behind him is just on fire. What's been so refreshing to me this week is the response of the church in Acts 8. Now this first generation Jewish church in Jerusalem did not live in a constitutional republic like we do with a expectation of civic and even political engagement. But what is the response of the church to the chaos, to the violence, to the disorder of Acts 8? Not to grab their flags, not to grab their weapons, their protest signs, to march on the Sanhedrin, not to march and move to get national leadership, to Uh, overthrow or to keep or to get their guy in power, not to participate in or enable lies or conspiracies, but to speak the truth about reality. In understanding that while they were citizens of the nation of Judah, and in understanding that while they were still citizens of the Roman Empire, they realized that their ultimate allegiance of citizenship had changed and had been elevated to a citizenship in heaven. And that took priority over and perhaps even against their national interests. The location of their political and religious identity had changed from the temple in Jerusalem, as we saw Stephen preach in chapter 7. But now, the presence of God would transcend national political borders and move from Jerusalem, move to Judea and then to Samaria, as we saw last week, and into the ends of the earth, that God would build his temple. But that God would build his temple, he would build his church now in and amongst his people. So what is the response of the church in Acts 8 to the chaos? They preached the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. In Acts 8, some variation of the word for preach or proclaim or testify or tell. Some variation of all these words appear eight times. Last week, we saw Philip, the former deacon who had been serving the needs of widows in Jerusalem. We saw him now up in Samaria, the land of the enemies of Jerusalem, and he is preaching the gospel. Where there had been disunity, now God the Father, through the work of God the Son, through the power of God the Spirit, had created a new people. Where once divided, Jew and Samaritan, now they were unified. Unified as the body of Christ. And Luke, the writer of Acts, is going to keep our attention on Philip for now the rest of the chapter. This is an incredible account that you heard Lydia read for us. 
with this Ethiopian man. We're going to divide it into two halves, thinking through the world's questions and the gospel's answers. The world's questions and the gospel's answers. So first of all, the world's questions. Back in Samaria, we've just got to imagine that things are awesome. Now, the church is growing. They are experiencing abundant life through the work of the Spirit. Presumably, they are experiencing the same kind of self-sacrificing unity and care for one another that the Jerusalem church had experienced and enjoyed in Acts 2 and in Acts 4. There is evangelism and conversion. There is discipling and preaching. Philip is probably getting to teach and preach, explaining the Scriptures. Perhaps he's thinking, God has called me to Samaria for a reason. Maybe Philip would have been content to live and retire amongst these people for the rest of his life. And then verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke says, this is a desert place. Almost like, that's funny. Like Luke doesn't give us any indication that the angel gave Philip any reason for going. Like, What for? What would he find there? And it's even pretty unspecific. The angel says, go toward the south to the road. So I guess I'll just follow the road then and then wait to hear from you again? Or should I like look for the next clue? Is it like on the third palm tree on the right or something? He doesn't know. He just obeys. Verse 27, he rose and went. Now in our TV episode version of this story, there would probably probably be a hard cut after he walks out of Samaria. Verse 27 says that Philip rose and went, but he doesn't meet anyone just yet. Luke is now introducing a new character with some backstory. He says there was an Ethiopian. Like if I were directing this TV episode, I would probably then like go to a flashback of this African brother's life. Luke tells us that he's a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, we won't go into all the details of why eunuchs would have been the most trusted court officials. You could perhaps Google that or ask me later. But the main bullet points about this guy that Luke is immediately trying to draw our attention to is that he's really important and that he's Ethiopian. These two things are related because Ethiopia is a long way away and only someone who is important enough and wealthy enough to make this trip could make it. Modern-day Ethiopia is way over on the eastern horn of Africa. In these days, Ethiopia was like an entire region and a kingdom of essentially like everything that's like sub-Egypt, everything that is south of Egypt uh, in, in, in eastern Africa. It's often referred to as Cush in the Old Testament, which likely included parts of modern-day Egypt and Sudan as well. Perhaps though maybe not stretching all the way over to modern-day Ethiopia. So when you hear Ethiopia, perhaps not just thinking of our modern-day borders. Now, while we don't exactly know where this guy might have been coming from, I I had some fun with Google Maps this week. Uh, I had our guy start in the city of Khartoum in modern-day Sudan. And Google Maps tells me that if he had a car starting from Khartoum, getting to Jerusalem, and if he avoided the modern-day ferries that would get him across the Red Sea, uh, it would take him 62 hours to drive the 1,800 miles across the desert. But of course, he didn't have a car. If he were to walk, Google Maps says that it would take him 550 hours to get to Jerusalem. This is likely at least a three- to four-week journey across the desert to get to Jerusalem, which Luke tells us he had come to 
he'd come to the city of Jerusalem to worship. Why? We don't know. We don't know how he knew of Jerusalem, what he expected to find there, what God he was coming to worship, presumably the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Maybe the queen of Sheba, who had come to visit Solomon about 900 years prior to this, had maybe taken the Jewish scriptures back to this region of Africa. And there were many people who knew of this God, who would also come to worship him. Though only, of course, the extraordinarily wealthy would have been able to make this pilgrimage. If he was familiar with these Jewish scriptures, though, he would have known before arriving in Jerusalem that he wouldn't have had access, full access, to the worship in the temple because, one, he was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. He was an outsider. But that second, he was a eunuch. The Levitical law excluded eunuchs from temple worship, presumably not because of moral reasons, but because of reasons of wholeness. Think about other ways in which temple worship was restricted. Even blemished lambs were not appropriate for sacrifice because of an emphasis on holistic purity. There were elaborate processes of cleansing that would make just a select few in the whole country able to worship in wholeness. And so maybe before traveling, this man, perhaps he did have the Jewish scriptures, Perhaps before this trip, he had the entire scroll or scrolls of the book of Isaiah that he, we find him reading on in just a minute. And perhaps he had read of Isaiah 56, where Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord said, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So maybe this guy is like really optimistic. Maybe he's read of Isaiah 56 and so he goes to worship at this holy mountain, at this house of prayer, that he might belong to God's people, perhaps even in obtaining a name that is better than that of just being a genetic son of da- or daughter of Abraham, but that he might belong to God and to his people. Now, we don't know what happened in Jerusalem. It could have been a wonderful experience, and this Ethiopian guy is on his way home, refreshed and encouraged by his time in Jerusalem, though we do know the kind of Jerusalem that he is leaving, and the kind of burning and violence that he would have been probably been, have been leaving behind. So if you've ever seen the movie Luther, where Joseph Fiennes plays Martin Luther, it recounts the time in Luther's life where he told of his pilgrimage to Rome. 
of how when Luther arrived in Rome, he was so confused and disgusted by what he found there. He made the trip to know God more clearly and instead only found empty and false worship of idols, a religion that brought fear and anxiety and exclusion rather than assurance and joy and belonging. Luther's trip back to Germany, perhaps on a wagon back from Italy up to Germany, is exactly how I speculatively imagine this Ethiopian guy's journey on back across the desert. Confused, disappointed, discouraged, And maybe he was trying to understand what he had missed in Isaiah 56. Maybe he's thinking, I I was expecting to feel this sense of belonging when I arrived. Maybe I just missed it. Maybe I missed the context. Like I had Isaiah 56 verses 3 through 8 on a poster in my bedroom, but it was just out of context. I should probably read what comes before and after it, which is always a good thing to do when reading the Bible. And so here he is, sitting on the back of his chariot, reading three chapters earlier from Isaiah 56, reading Isaiah 53, and he's real confused. He's reading about a sheep that never makes a noise, never gives a cry before he gets slaughtered. The sheep is humiliated. The sheep is denied justice. But it is this sheep that will bear the sins of many. And this dead sheep will then be an intercessor, a go-between for sinful outsiders, I'm sorry, what? That doesn't make any sense. What kind of sheep are we talking about? He's sitting on the back of his chariot with like scrolls unrolled, frustrated, confused, despondent as he's reading this thing out loud. He's like head on his forehead. And then he looks up and there's a guy sprinting right at him. And he's probably weirded out a little bit. And he probably like puts his hand underneath the scroll and grabs hold of his sword because this guy is like sprinting right at him. This guy comes up, is out of breath. He's like, hey, hey. Just a second, just a second. Uh, Hey, uh, do you understand what you're reading? Uh, This Ethiopian guy is probably thinking, No, no, I don't. This is weird, but how will I understand this weird stuff about a dead sheep unless someone explains it to me? You got something? And Philip says, boy, do I. The Spirit of the Lord is at work, not only drawing people to himself, but then arranging encounters and arranging conversations. Because this is what this Ethiopian is reading when Philip sprints up out of breath. Verse 32, like a sheep from Isaiah 53, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. In verse 34, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Now, this this Ethiopian guy, this outsider with no sense of belonging to God, no sense of belonging to the God who created him has got lots of questions. Who is this sheep? 
And if the rest of the chapter is in play, who is the man that the arm of the Lord has planted like a young plant that has no beauty or has no majesty? Who is this one that was rejected and despised, but who has borne our griefs and has carried our sorrows? And if Isaiah 56 about eunuchs is indeed in play, perhaps he's thinking, what does this have to do with that? How do I belong? And we're about to get to Philip's response and to the gospel's answers to all of these questions. But I titled this first half of this section, The World's Questions and not The Ethiopian's Questions for a reason. I mean, this instance in Acts 8, like it is served up on a silver platter. Luke is beating us over the head to make sure that we understand that this is a providentially appointed encounter. The guy, this guy, is reading the chapter from the book in the Old Testament that perhaps most clearly points, points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But here's the thing. The unbelieving world around us is asking all of the same kinds of questions. The, the questions, they morph and they change through time and location, but all humans— whether consciously or subconsciously, are all asking, who am I? What should I do about my own personal sense of failure, my own personal sense of inadequacy, of exclusion? I feel like a hypocrite. What do I do about that? I feel like I don't belong. What will make the world right? What will make me right? Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, perhaps even you are asking all of these same questions. Every human on the planet is asking some version or variation of these questions. And yet, only the gospel can give satisfying, consistent, and comprehensive answers to all of humans' deepest questions. So let's look. Now, if We've considered the world's questions. Let's now consider the gospel's answers. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. I don't think it really hit me until this week of how boring, but of how important it is that God uses Philip to explain the good news, or literally the gospel of Jesus, to explain Isaiah 53 to this man. Like, have you ever thought about it? I didn't until this day, or until this week, that the very same angel of the Lord that came to Philip in Samaria could have just showed up on the same desert road to the Ethiopian. Like, this angel, God sending the angel, could have saved everyone a whole lot of time and energy. Like Philip could have remained in Samaria, discipling and preaching and growing the church there. The Ethiopian man would have had this explosive spiritual encounter that he would have never forgotten for the rest of his life. That seems like a better plan to me. To just take care of it himself, God could have. But the thing is, is that the Ethiopian did have an explosive supernatural encounter and event that he would never forget for the rest of his life. And it is through the very boring and ordinary means that God says that he will build his church. It is through preaching, through teaching, through baptizing, through discipling, 
that he would turn the household of his presence no longer into a building, but into a people. The Spirit, in a very supernatural way, is in a seemingly boring and natural way, building his church into a global people. People will not understand or know God without Christians opening their mouths, without Christians preaching the gospels and explaining the scriptures. Apart from the work of the Spirit speaking through the mouths of his people, the world is just stumbling around in darkness, asking all of the right questions and finding none of the right answers. Just like we all were, until someone opened their mouths with us. If we are Christians, when someone explained the gospel with us, opened the scriptures with us, explained the word of God, giving us now a lamp into our feet, a flashlight through the very dark forest road. And so whenever the gospel is proclaimed, whenever the Bible is opened, studied, read, or explained, there is an explosively supernatural moment of the Spirit of God at work even if the results don't feel explosively supernatural, even if you don't see the results at all. Philip explains, beginning with the scripture, meaning he probably used Isaiah 53 as a jumping off point to then explain the whole of the Old Testament story, the whole of the gospel story, to explain that the good news is that Jesus, the high king of heaven and earth, Through him, God saves sinners. Through his life and death and resurrection. That this this Ethiopian man's questions are good questions. That all find all of their answers. That all find all of their yes and amen in Christ. That there is separation from God because of sin. Because of intentional rebellion of humanity to either in open insurrection, trying to overthrow God as king, or in indifference to just ignore him as the creator of all things, and instead worship other things, including ourselves, that there is separation and even exclusion in the old covenant way of God's interaction with and indwelling with his people, but that now Jesus has torn the veil separating God and man. And as he welcomes sinners to himself to be forgiven, washed, and welcomed into the presence of God, now the exclusion that this man would have felt and known, an outsider, someone without a sense of belonging, someone excluded, someone who experiences even very physically and perhaps psychologically and spiritually a sense of unwholeness, can now be made whole. Now this same God is by his spirit and through his people now tenderly inviting the outsider, tenderly whispering and calling and embracing those former rebels, former enemies, former outsiders to himself to belong. Coming to Christ in this age and in these bodies may not bring physical restoration as it wouldn't have had with this man. May not bring comprehensive psychological clarity that our bodies and minds might confuse us with. But coming to Christ will bring us to a good and faithful shepherd 
that being identified with him in his death and resurrection, that being near to him will bring you rest. Will bring the answer to your deepest question, your deepest problem, the forgiveness of your sins, as you can now follow him with a clean conscience. And the eunuch hears all that and says, I'm in. I'm in. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized right now? Let's go. I'm in. That's all I need to hear. Confronted with the reality of a holy God, the reality of his separation from this God, confronted with Jesus who has loved him and has given himself for him, there is now no time to dilly-dally. He doesn't need to sleep on it. He doesn't need to think about it and have all of his questions answered. There is no reason to not immediately identify his life with Jesus's life and his death with Jesus's death, to have the trajectory of his life now immediately altered. And perhaps amongst us, we might find ourselves challenged by this story in different ways. Maybe many of us in this room need to be challenged by our brother Philip's obedience to God, by an urgency of the Spirit to now run toward opportunities to share the good news of Jesus, of both praying for opportunities that God might providentially arrange and then having the courage and the obedience and the love for others to take advantage of the opportunities that God arranges to shine the spotlight on Christ and to urge for repentance. Still others among us might be more challenged by our brother, the Ethiopian, who decisively responded in faith. He might not have had all of his questions answered. He definitely did not have his entire life cleaned up or had all of his bad habits now made better. He was an outsider, but now he is an insider. He was an enemy, now he is a friend. He was once lost, now is found. He was once an orphan, now he is a son. Why in the world would you wait and not experience all of that? Especially when he, is, he and you are not promised tomorrow. Come to Christ today. Have your sins forgiven. Why wait? What is preventing you? And yet at the same time, the history of the American church, especially in about the last 160 years or so, is that of placing an emphasis on a time, a moment of decision, of decisively identifying with Christ and an immediate baptism following in the pattern of Acts 8, without an understanding of that a day of salvation is rather a life of salvation. Of identifying with Christ not in a moment, but that moment being the first moment of the rest of your life. That moment being the first moment of the rest of eternity. Rather than counting the cost of what it means to follow Christ, but then saying, yes, Amen, and he's worth it. I still want to follow him for the joy that he will bring. Instead, perhaps saying, well, what's the harm in getting baptized? I guess it's probably worth it. I mean, it seems like a fair trade to get wet for a moment, if that can secure eternity. Seems like a pretty wise investment of my time and dryer at home to dry my clothes. Good trade. 
Now, the normative pattern of repentance and faith and baptism in the book of Acts is to be baptized not only into Christ, but into the church, into his body. Philip, understanding that this man is headed back to Ethiopia where there is no church, in fact, he is heading back to be the very first Christian, the very first ambassador to the nations, perhaps he's thinking, and perhaps not, but perhaps he's thinking, yeah, we got to baptize this guy right now. Let's go. And yet, the Ethiopian guy is also an outlier in the book of Acts. He is not baptized into a growing community, a growing church, a growing body of Christ. But his baptism, a decisive baptism, along with every other baptism in the first few centuries of the, of the church, was a big, big deal. These first several thousand who were baptized in Jerusalem that we saw at the beginning of the book would be saying in their baptism— that they no longer would adhere to the temple system of worship or adhere to a strict following of the law for their righteousness. Their baptism would announce them to their community and to their people to, at best, be zealots or radicals or, at worst, blasphemers or false worshipers. Their baptism likely burned bridges relationally, socially, socially, and within their families outside of Jerusalem and in the rest of the Roman Empire, as we'll continue to see in the book of Acts, to be baptized was now to wear a badge of perceived disloyalty to Rome, disloyal to Roman gods and to Roman emperors. To get into the waters of baptism was in and of itself an act of counting the cost of following Jesus and finding him worth it an act of faith. All of this is unlike today, where in many church cultures in which it can be more socially costly to not be baptized, now of course this is becoming less so, but perhaps in some cultures you might not be thought of as highly socially or morally unless you are baptized. Again, less and less these days, but growing up in Texas in the 80s or the 90s, like, All good Texans have had a moment of baptism, have had a moment of, hey, when did you get saved? Yep, mine was in sixth grade. Yep, that's when I got baptized. Yep. Everybody has a story like that. And many of them, praise the Lord, are genuine and real and good. But this is why we, unlike the Ethiopian who, where there was no church to be baptized into, was immediately but radically baptized, we tie baptisms to our membership class. And since the act of baptism today carries very little cost and mostly benefit, we want to give folks an opportunity, an opportunity of time to count the cost, not to have all their questions answered and their faith worked out like the Ethiopian didn't have a time to, but perhaps consider the cost of, do I actually have faith in the risen Christ? And do I want to follow him? Am I following him? So maybe an international student who is with us comes to faith in Christ, but they are returning back to their country like next week or next month, and they don't know of any gospel preaching churches in their home city or even their home country. We'd probably baptize them right away. What's preventing them? Nothing. Let's go. Or maybe 10 or 20, 30 years from now, American culture is much different Maybe some of us will be planting churches in different cultures 
around the world in which baptism will be a decisive break from society and from self, from choosing the kingdom of Christ over the kingdom of the world and of ourself, we'd probably baptize more like Philip and the Ethiopian. And yet, all that said, we still want to talk to you about decisively choosing to follow Christ of decisively coming to a moment of saying, I want to be with him. I want to identify my life with him. I trust in his promises. I trust that he is resurrected from the dead, and I believe him. What must I do to be saved? Let's talk through it. There comes a a time in a person's life where we must come to that moment. Now, we won't, at the end of this service, ask you to walk up the aisle and fill out a card and take you into a room to lead you in a prayer or something like that. But after the service, we would like to talk to you. We would like to help you think through what the scriptures say about the good news of Jesus. Either in person or perhaps tonight on Zoom. No more dilly-dally. I assure you, you don't need to sleep on it. There is nothing else that you need to get right in your life. If I can even challenge you in this, you might have questions that are still unanswered about Jesus, but you will always come up with more. Perhaps it is today. Perhaps today is the day of salvation for you. The day where you would come to Christ and have your sins forgiven. Maybe you have been following Jesus for many months or many years. You are his. He is yours but you've never been baptized. Baptism is the first act of obedience in following Christ. It is the way to identify your life with his, your death with his. And so while there is much, much more to say about baptism, if you have decisively turned from society and self, imperfectly, yes, but depending on the grace of Christ and in his resurrection power to change the trajectory of your life, but you have never proclaimed this decisive turn of repentance to the God who has saved you and to the church who will walk with you, it's time to be baptized. Not as a a, a work that will bring you salvation, it is only Jesus, but it is time to identify publicly with him, to put on the jersey to say that you belong to his team. And we would love to baptize you. Our next membership, membership class will begin at the end of February. And we want to think and read and pray about all of this with you. So let's do it. Perhaps it's time. What is preventing me from being baptized? Here's some water. Let's do it. So Philip and the Ethiopian come up out of the water. And then the Holy Spirit carries Philip away to the coastal town of Azotus. Back in the land of Israel, very near to the modern day Tel Aviv, where Philip would keep preaching through all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, don't ask me what this means. (laughs) Don't ask me what it means that the Spirit carried him away, uh, certainly by means of, like, what it looks like with, like, particle physics and stuff. I don't know. Don't ask me what it looked like to the eunuch when Philip just apparently disappears, because I don't know. All we know is that the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The next time we hear from Philip is in Acts 21, where Philip hosts Paul and his small entourage in Caesarea, and there Philip is called the evangelist. 
Philip the Evangelist, him and his four daughters. We're still living in Caesarea. It seems like the settled down place of ministry and, and growth that he perhaps thought he might have experienced in Samaria, now he is enjoying and experiencing in Caesarea. God meant it for there, but only after the gospel would go through him to the nations. Jerusalem was burning at the beginning of Acts 8. There is chaos and disorder, and it feels like the world and the church is being decreated. By the end of Acts 8, there is order. There is life. There is joy. Not through governments or politicians, not through elections or debates, not even through protests or attempted insurrections. It is the word of God that speaks creation life. It is the preaching of the gospel that brings order out of the chaos. So, let's go from here encouraged, convicted, challenged, invigorated by the Spirit of God who will send us. Send us out that many others might be brought in. Let's pray to that end. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have not only been faithful to send your Son, to send your Spirit, but that you have been faithful to send your people and in their response that they have been faithful to your goodness, that they have been faithful to preach the gospel, that someone preached the gospel to us, that we understood, those of us who are in Christ, that we heard the good news proclaimed out of someone else's mouth. Though even as imperfect as those evangelists were, perhaps even in an incomplete understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And yet, we heard it all the same. And we came to believe. Send us now. Use us now. Send us wherever you would have us. Help us to pray. Help us to be aware of opportunities. Help us to take advantage of them. Help us to walk into them. Help us to run to them. That our coworkers, that our family, that our neighbors that our friends might hear the gospel and believe. We pray that you would do this to bring glory to your name, assurance to your people, and joy to the world. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.